Well, welcome back for those who were at the uh, <clears throat> First Catholicism 101 on how to pray. This one is, who is Jesus? Um, and also, how does he save us? Uh, kind of a general topic and one that um, you probably think you know, but as this quiz kind of shows you, there's, there's things that maybe we think we understand or we kind of know more or less what Catholics believe, but if we really press it, there's kind of limits, and we say, like, oh, is that really true, or is that not quite what we believe? Um, so it can be helpful to just review some of this stuff, basic Catholic teaching on Jesus. This is uh, from the Philippian, Philippians hymn of St. Paul. St. Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians, the, the Christians at Philippi, in about 55 AD. And he wrote this. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So lest we think that the idea that Jesus is the Son of God or that Jesus is God was some later innovation that was imported into the church from Greek philosophy or something like that, from the very beginning of the church, St. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was writing to the church that he had founded in Philippi just like a couple decades after Christ's death and resurrection. He was in the form of God. In Greek, the morphe, theou, the, the form of God, the essence of God in, in a certain sense. Um, yet he also took the likeness of man. So the idea that Jesus is both God and man is there from the very beginning. Certainly by the time we read the Gospel of John, the beginning of the Gospel of John, that the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This whole idea that God became human in Jesus is, is right there in, in the Bible, and it's there in the beginning of the church. So, uh, that's a little teaser, but uh, Numbers 1 and 2, Jesus is a man, Jesus is God, are those true or false? True. Both of them are true, right? That's kind of the really revolutionary thing about Christianity is that Jesus is a man and Jesus is God. So that's the answer to the question, what is Jesus? So then this baby is God, right? In the manger. So what about the last one? Mary held God in her arms. True, true. true right? Well, Mary held God. What about God died on the cross? True, true. true right? How about God is Mary's son? Very good. Better than some seminarians. Okay. So what makes this question kind of complicated to some is that people will say, Jesus isn't God. Jesus is the son of God. How can he be both the son of God and God himself? They'll say things like, well, when Jesus goes off to pray, who is he praying to if he's God? Well, the question is a little bit Uh, confusing for two reasons. One is that God is three persons and one God, correct? The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and all three persons are the one triune God. And Jesus is one person, namely the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, but the Son assumed a second nature, namely a human nature, so he's both has a divine nature and a human nature. So you have Three persons, one God, one person, two natures. So the question is complicated for that reason. But the bottom line is that Jesus is God, 
and Jesus is a man. He's fully God and fully man. So what about the third one? Jesus was actually God, so he only appeared to be human. Is that true or false? False. False, right? And do you understand why? Because he didn't just appear to be human. It wasn't like he put on a human suit and he didn't actually die because God can't die. He just kind of pretended to fall asleep in his human suit and then three days later came back. And No, he's, he, he totally became human in every sense but sin. Because if he didn't do that, then he couldn't have redeemed us. Like if his divinity hadn't become totally human, our humanity would still be in some ways separate from God. But Jesus is the marriage between God and human beings. So he has to be perfectly human and perfectly divine. Okay, what is God? This is kind of, I addressed this question last time. That little girl, well, not so little, she was a seventh grader. She asked me, what is God? Do you remember what I said? Mm-hmm. What would I have said if I had to answer the question today? Love. Well, God is love, but to imagine it, what is God? This is. Do you know what this painting is, by the way? It's a very famous painting of God. It's Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, the creation of Adam. The other hand is Adam's hand. He's the one lounging on the cloud. And, and God is going out like this with all his angels holding him. Um so we think of God as like this old man in the sky, but what God is actually, if you think about it, it, my image was God is like a person holding an acorn, only the acorn is the entire universe, all 80 billion galaxies and all the, all the rest of it, and we're just this tiny little grain of dust inside this acorn, except the acorn itself is actually a grain of dust, the whole universe, and God is this huge, unimaginably big giant. Only still the difference between us and God is not yet big enough. God is actually infinite, we are finite, we add nothing to God's glory. So God is this humongous giant, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. Yet he's so big, we say, Christians, that he can become small. He's so limitless that he can even take on limits. Does that make sense? So that's why this baby is actually the giant. You see what I'm saying? And the thing about the Trinity is that wherever one person of the Trinity is and is acting, all three of the persons of the Trinity are present. So like Thomas says at the Last Supper to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Do you remember that? And Jesus says, uh, or maybe it's Philip says this, and he says, Philip, have I been with you this long and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So the Father's face is Jesus' face. To see Jesus is to see God, the Father, and the Spirit. To have the Holy Spirit is to have Jesus in you, right? And the presence of the Father. The the three are never separate. Okay, so that's what's radical about the Christian revelation, is that the giant has become small. To be held in Mary's arms. To be nailed to a cross. To come to you in the Eucharist. That's God. So I think about it like St. Peter on the shore of the sea when he gets called to be a fisher of men. That was our gospel last Sunday. That St. Peter, this, this man came to him at his work. He was mending his nets and doing his, his job as a fisherman with his brother um, Andrew and James and John are there with their dad, Zebedee. And they're just minding their own business and this man comes and let, like, let me get in your boat. 
and he lets him get in the boat, and then he has this experience. But he must have seen something in Jesus' face. Jesus was a man, but he was also God. So there had to be something in his eyes or his face that, or his demeanor or how he talked that made Peter know, like, there's something special about him. But he wouldn't have known he was God, right? He wasn't like an X-Man where he was, like, floating or had claws or something. He was just a man by all appearances, but yet he was God at the same time. So Peter decides to follow him. We all know that he ends up denying him. Then finally he sees Jesus risen from the dead, first the empty tomb and then on the shore of the sea, the same place where, Jesus, where he met him at Galilee. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me three times, undoing his three denials of, of Christ. He says, feed my lambs. He puts him in charge of the apostles and the entire church. And yet still on Pentecost Sunday, Peter and the rest are up in the upper room with Mary and the other the apostles. And finally, the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles. And that's when Peter starts to speak about Jesus. And I imagine he probably looks back on his life from that point of view and says, that day that he came to me at my work, the giant, God, came to me. That's who it was. Because what Peter says is... Men of Israel, hear these words. This is the second picture. The first picture is his call. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So after having received the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks this for the first time. This this Jesus is Lord and Christ. The the death could not hold him. He he says later in Acts of the Apostles, the author of life you put to death. Okay, so it's like it makes his whole life makes sense all of a sudden. And that's why Peter and, and the rest of the apostles who knew Jesus in this life as a man, now knowing him as, a God, as God himself, can go off and they have no fear of death. Right? They have no fear of rejection and insult and, and scourging. They, they, just, they love Jesus so much. And it's not like he's gone, like he's some friend that died and has gone up into heaven. He's there with them still through the Holy Spirit. Okay, but whenever I think about this, I don't know about you, but I always ask, what about me? Okay, so Peter... And those guys got to see Jesus and his beard and his face and his robes and all the rest of it. They got to see him walk on water. The shepherds got to see the baby Jesus. Mary got to hold him in her arms. What about me? It's 2,000 years later. And I've never, you know, maybe you've never been to Galilee or Bethlehem or Jerusalem. So it's just some place and some time very, very far away from me. But the fact is that the apostles and even Mary... We're not, maybe Mary's an exception to this, but certainly the apostles and the shepherds and the, and the other people, Pontius Pilate, the people that saw Jesus and knew him in the flesh, were not more, he's not more intimately present to them than he is to us. As a matter of fact, he's more intimately present to you and me than he was to Peter and them before his resurrection and ascension. Why? Because the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is in you because of your baptism. So you know Jesus more intimately than they did. Because, as I said, when any one person of the Trinity is present and acting, all three persons of the Trinity are there. So if you have the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus. 
And what the apostles realized on Pentecost, what Peter and the rest of them realized, was that when Jesus came to earth, we have this idea of Jesus coming down from heaven to be born of the Virgin Mary. And that's true if, if you think of heaven as the sky, but, but God is everywhere, right? So Jesus was at the right hand of the Father, but he never left the Father's side to come to us. He was always, in certain way, at the, at the Father's side. The Father was always with him. He was always with the Father. Everything he did, he received from the Father and offered back to him. And when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he never really left us. That's what Peter and the apostles realized. So he's still here. And he promised to the church in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you until the end of the age. Jesus is here with the church. In a certain way, he is the church. The church is his body. Most perfectly in the Eucharist, when we celebrate the Eucharist, God, the, the, Jesus and the church become one. You think of the church as Jesus' bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom, and the Mass is the wedding feast of the Lamb. Does that any of this language sound familiar? So Jesus is present to the church, more present. In fact, Jesus' body is now, after the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus still has a body, right? But his body now is no longer limited to the flesh and bones of a particular man in Nazareth or Cana or Galilee. His body is, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. Or, whatever you do for the least of my brethren, you do for me. So, the poor person over by the Dan Ryan, that's Christ. That's his body. He's with you. He's with you on the altar, in the tabernacle, in the Eucharist. Jesus is here. Okay, and then finally, one, one important thing is that now since the incarnation, since God has taken on flesh, even physical matter can bear the divine reality, the divine presence. So obviously the Eucharist is the perfect example of that. Bread becomes God because bread becomes Jesus and Jesus is God. So you were actually, and God is love. Have you ever thought about that? That when you receive the Eucharist, you're receiving love itself, infinite, perfect love in your own body and heart and soul. Okay, so physical stuff can bear God's presence. But that's also true of things like images, icons, people, statues. Right, so after, after the resurrection, we don't worship idols, we don't worship statues, but we believe that images and art and, and things like that can bear the divine presence to us sacramentally. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's kind of who Jesus is. And then very quickly, I want to go through how does he save us? So here I have the crucifixion and the resurrection. Somehow, this mystery of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven and the descent of the Holy Spirit, the Paschal mystery is the, the name we put on that, the Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and then Pentecost. Somehow that saves us. And I don't know about you, when I was a kid, I always heard Jesus died for our sins. I also remember it's called Good Friday because it's good for us. Bad for him, good for us, right? But I didn't really understand, like, how does that work, work mathematically, economically? Like, Jesus died, therefore I can live. How does that work exactly? So there's, there's two sort of ways of thinking about this. One is sort of the objective and one is the subjective. One is, like, objectively, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross saves me redeems me somehow, forgives me of my sin, and gives me eternal life. And subjectively, I somehow have to participate in that by faith or by a choice, make, like, enjoy the fruits of his uh, sacrifice and his resurrection. So these are from the Bible, Romans 5, 8, 
18 to 21. In conclusion, just as through one transgression condemnation came upon all, so through one righteous act acquittal and life came to all. For just as through the disobedience of one person the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law entered in so that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace overflowed all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the justification for eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. All this is to say that we sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. Their disobedience caused all of us to be condemned, objectively. We're all their children. We're all fruit of their um, union. And therefore, we all are, we may not be to blame for it, but we're responsible. Okay, so somebody has to undo that disobedience through an act of obedience. And Jesus does that objectively. So one way to think about this, a friend of mine said once, his nephews had gone trick-or-treating on Halloween. And one was a little bit older and one was a little younger. And <clears throat> the next day was Sunday, so they went to church. And the dad said, you have to be good at church, otherwise you can't eat any of your Halloween candy when you get back from Mass. And uh, if I have to take you into the back of church because you're misbehaving, you don't get to eat any of the candy. So the older one was like perfect kid at Mass that next day so that he could eat the candy. The other one, not as mature, not as old, he acts out, has to go to back of church. Anyways... At the end of Mass, they're going back to the car, and the little one realizes what he's done, and that he's not going to get to eat the candy, and they, he's all sad, and they get back home. And his dad has to be, you know, like, he has to follow through. He can't, you know, make a promise and then not do it, because then well, they're not going to take him seriously. They're not going to do it next time. It's not good discipline to do that, to go back on your promise. So the older one's eating his candy, and he looks up and he sees his brother and he feels really bad for him. So he asks his dad, well, dad, if he can't eat his candy, can I give him some of mine? And the dad was like, actually, yeah, sure, that's fine. You earned it. You deserve it. You were obedient. You can share it. You can do whatever you want with your candy. So in certain way, that's how Jesus's uh, obedience, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's kind of a way to understand how we couldn't do it ourselves. We're not mature enough. We don't, we, there's something in us that's like just disobedient. We can't behave ourselves. But Jesus, the perfect man, was obedient. And because he was our brother, there was, some, there was some bond between us. In his becoming human, he became part of our family, actually a son of Adam and Eve too. And so he's able to share the fruits of his obedience with us. That's substitution. But there's also the second way of understanding how he saves us, which is solidarity. This is 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the gracious act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that for your sake he became poor, although he was rich, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is in theology called the marvelous exchange. That Jesus, God, became man so that man could become God. Life entered death so that we who die could live. The rich the, the, the uh, all-powerful became weak and poor so that we who are weak and poor might become rich and powerful. Okay, so this, this marvelous exchange, we enter into the loop of solidarity. As he becomes one with us, we become one with him and therefore can enjoy the fruits of his obedience and we can become saints. Okay, so one way to understand this way of saving us is the classic story of the geese. Have you ever heard of the, the farmer and the geese? It's an old parable. So, I don't know if it's true, but it might be. Um, but there was this farmer and his family, they were Catholic, <clears throat> but the man had kind of stopped believing. He thought it all sounded like a fairy tale. Oh, God became a baby, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. 
uh, he didn't believe it, but his wife and his kids were still Catholic. So on Christmas Eve night, they have their dinner, and then they're, they're off to midnight mass, the wife and the kids. And the dad's like, I'll just stay home. I'll get things cleaned up after dinner. I'll be waiting for you when you get back from mass. So he's doing the dishes. <clears throat> they're off at mass. And it's kind of like a little bit of a snowstorm. And he ne- notices these geese that are out in his field in the farm. And he's like, oh, they got lost because geese should be south for the winter and they're going to freeze to death out there. So after he's done, out of an act of mercy, he puts on his gloves, his hat, and his coat and everything and trudges out into the field and he tries to corral the geese into his barn that for the night at least they can stay warm, not die, and then maybe in the morning when the sun comes out they can fly south. But the geese are afraid of him. And so every time like he's, he's able to kind of herd them a little bit close to the barn, but anytime they get close to the door... They're like, oh, that's the unknown. We'll be trapped in there. Who knows who this guy is? So they fly out to the side, and he can't get him in. And so he's getting frustrated and cold, and he finally thinks to himself, if only I could become one of these geese, then they might trust me, and I could just lead them into the barn. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing makes sense. The whole Bible makes sense. Like, oh, this was God trying to save human beings who had strayed. They got lost, and they were dying. And he said, come on into the barn. It'll be safe. You'll be happy. Do what I want you to do. It's not for me. It's for you. You can trust me. And the, and the geese were like, no, he's scary. He's big. He's out to get us. And finally, God, in the fullness of time, said, I could just become, and this is the thing about God, he can do whatever he wants. He can become limited, even though he's unlimited. He can become small, even though he's big. So he becomes one of us, lives our life, dies our death, and rises to new life to show us there's nothing to be afraid of. So what's the barn? in that analogy. It's the cross. It's death. What does Jesus say? How do, how do we unite ourselves to him? Take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow me. Basically die so you can live. He also says, whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. Whoever tries to save their life, they'll lose it. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. All of this, he's, what he's trying to invite us into is participation in his death his sacrifice, his suffering, so that we can enjoy his glory, his life, his resurrection. Does that make sense? There are two last ways, and both kind of line up with substitution and solidarity. This one's first, the the substitution. This is a a theory of salvation called Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. Does anybody know what this painting is of? Who do you think that gargoyle-looking thing is under Jesus' feet. Who do you think that is? Satan. Is it Satan? (laughs) It's the devil, right? That's the church lady from Saturday Night Live. It's an old reference you don't get. Um, Who do you think the old man and the old woman are? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. So where is Jesus in this this painting? This is called the harrowing of hell. For all the people, and who do you think the king is? I'll bet you that's David, King David. Prophets, Moses. So before Jesus, the gates of heaven, of eternal life, are closed, right? Because we can't get there ourselves. We can't be perfect. We can't, we can't do this obedience thing we need to live in the Garden of Eden. So we've banished ourselves from paradise. But Jesus comes to open the gates. And there's this passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Now, since the children share in blood and flesh, he likewise shared in them, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who, through fear of death, 
had been subject to slavery all their life. So this way of reading sin and death and Jesus and salvation is through the lens of slavery. That we have been enslaved to sin and to death. Okay, so do you know the story of the devil, of Satan, where he came from? He's an angel, right? All demons are fallen angels. And angels are pure spirits. Some angels have special jobs like Gabriel or Raphael. They get sent out to human beings to do messages. Some of them are, are guardian angels. But there are some angels. A, angels' purpose is to serve God and give him glory. And God created all the angels and he created Lucifer the best. Lucifer in Latin means light bearer. He was the biggest, best angel. And then God creates human beings who are both kind of angels and animals. Right? We have a body and a spiritual soul. We're like God's piece de resistance. We're like the best thing he ever made. We're the most unique thing. We're the bridge between the world and heaven. We're made in his image, remember? Lucifer's not made in God's image. He's a superior spirit. He has reason and free will, but not like us, male and female, God's image, like the Trinity, right? So Satan is jealous. He hates us. And he says to God, I will not serve you. And of course, you can't be in heaven if you don't serve God. If you want to be your own God, you can go to your own heaven, a.k.a. hell. To be apart from God is to be in hell, to be your own God. And so Lucifer gets banished from heaven along with all the angels that follow him that don't want to live according to God's kingdom and, and want to be their own gods and make this awful, terrible place called hell. And he's also given uh, access to us. He's banished from heaven, but he's able to prowl the earth seeking the ruin of souls. So he's in the garden with Adam and Eve. And there's, one per there's two people he hates more than God, and that's us, Adam and Eve. And so he wants to trick them. He wants to destroy them because his desire is to mock them for all eternity. He knows their souls are immortal, that God has made them in his image. But he, he wants them to be shut out from that immortality, from that paradise, to live in friendship with God. He wants them, in short, to do what he did. To say, I will not serve. I don't want you to be my God. I want to be my own God. And so he seduces them and tricks them and therefore enslaves them. And now all of us are slaves to sin, first of all. Now, have, has anyone not sinned? And did you want, do you want to sin? Then why do you do it? Because you're a slave. <laughs> you can't not do it. You're a slave to your addictions. You're a slave to your bad habits. You're a slave to sin, all of us, myself included. Okay, so I'm a slave to sin. I'm a slave to death and the fear of death. All of us know we're going to die. And all of us, none of us want to. Who wants to die? I only want to because I know that's the way to go to heaven. But I don't want to die today. <laughs> right? Okay, so all of us are enslaved to these two things. Sin and the fear of death. And Jesus comes down, who is neither slave to sin nor to death. Well, he makes himself a slave to death. Or he submits to death. But he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. Okay, so when Jesus is on the cross, you can imagine, you ever seen The Passion of the Christ? Where uh, the devil is like this kind of androgynous, weird-looking, bald uh, kind of figure and following Jesus around and like, what's the deal with this guy? You really think you can handle all the sin of the world? And, and the devil seems to, to um, 
kind of exult in, in, his, in Jesus' suffering. And he inspires the crowd to kind of reject Jesus. But little does he know that Jesus is drawing him into his trap. Right? The devil is kind of like falling into Jesus' trap. Because, yeah, he knows that Jesus doesn't sin. He tried to tempt him in the desert those 40 days, but Jesus wouldn't. But he might not be a slave to sin, but neither is his mom. Okay, she's not that special, right? The devil's thinking. She can't save all these people. And anyway, you're about to die, so you're about to be mine. Like all the rest of these people that I've got down there in hell, who I've got kingship over because I got them all to turn away from God. So I get them all. They're my slaves. And Jesus is like, yeah, okay. He's on the cross. He's like, yeah, I'll die. And he does die. Not a fake death, not a pretend death. He dies a real death. And goes down to his domain, the devil's domain, hell, and just stomps him. Turns him into jam on the pavement, right? And, and like embarrasses him. Because the devil thought he had won, but Jesus won. And he gets right to all these people. He wins them all back. Ever seen Taken? When Liam Neeson gets his girl out of sex slavery? That's it. Jesus has a very particular set of skills, right? And he's gone and he's got them all out of slavery. He got them all back. And he, and he took this guy and he, he's met us all. None of us have to be afraid of him anymore. So the devil's still prowling around with his demons and stuff, trying to freak us out and scare us. But if you have Jesus, do you have anything to be afraid of? You don't even have to be afraid of death. And that's what the church, the martyrs, the saints, they were like, we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Okay, Nero, you want to kill me? Go ahead. I'm just going to go be with Jesus. Okay, so they showed the people. And that's how Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of Christians. Like That's how the church actually grew was by people getting persecuted and killed for their faith because they showed that they weren't afraid of death anymore. They weren't afraid of the powers of this world because they weren't slaves. They were free. Okay, and then this final way of understanding salvation, I have this picture of the chalice and the water. The priest, when he pours the water into the wine before the consecration of the Eucharist, he says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Okay, so this is kind of what I was saying about solidarity, that Christ became man so that man could become God. He came to share in our humanity so we could share in his divinity. There's another one of my favorite quotes by St. Augustine. Whatever belongs to Christ by nature belongs to us by grace. So Jesus by nature is God. I am not. I am by nature a human being, so therefore limited, not immortal, not infinitely loving or infinitely patient or kind. But God is infinitely patient, kind, merciful, loving, all-powerful, eternal. So Christ has all those things by nature because he's God. And he's shared them. By becoming one with us, he's shared and given us access to all that stuff. So now because you have the Holy Spirit, if somebody's testing your patience, right, someone's really difficult to love, do you have the ability to love them? Yes. Yes, all you have to do is ask God for help. Our problem is that we don't want the help. The same St. Augustine, his big sin was lust. He had a mistress. He had a child out of wedlock. Uh, he, he liked partying. Okay, He was not a perfect Christian boy. And he had this famous prayer. He said to God, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. 
right? Because he wanted to be good, but he also didn't want to be good because he knew once he decided that to follow God, then all sorts of these little pet pleasures that made him happy that he thought he needed to be happy would be off limits. So he, he, was, he failed to commit. But once he did, he became a saint because he realized everything I need to become a saint is right there. Jesus has made it very easy to ask for help. I just have to ask for it. Thomas Merton, a friend of his, said, uh, you know, what, what do you want to be? Thomas Merton had become a Trappist monk. He's a famous spiritual writer in the 20th century. And uh, he's like, I guess I just want to be like a good Catholic. He's like, that's the worst answer I've ever heard. You should want to be a saint. He's like, how could I be a saint? He said, by choosing to be. And that like changed his life. He's like, you're right. All I have to do is choose to be a saint. And I can. It's going to be hard. It's going to take some sacrifice. But if I have all the riches of grace of the triune God at my disposal through Jesus and my baptism and the sacraments, I'm not perfect, but the perfect God is here to help me. Okay, so that's how, that's the, the, the word we have for that is divinization. That in heaven, all the saints have been divinized. That's why we have this image of the marriage feast of God and humanity, that Jesus marries the church and he's prepared his bride to be a spotless bride, the perfect uh, bride for the bridegroom, because he, he has become one flesh with us, just as a husband becomes one flesh with his wife and bears new life. So he's, he's become one flesh with the church and sort of given us his life to become him, become one with him. We, re- we still are, retain our identity as individual souls, but we become part of his body. So in, indispensable to each other and part of him. That's divinization. So that's, in short, who Jesus is and how he saves us. This is a picture of heaven with all the saints in it. Any questions? How'd you do on the quiz? Well, you haven't gone through all the answers. Ooh. True that. <laughs> so three was false. Four, Jesus was created by God before all time began. True or false? What's false about that? He was never created, right? He was begotten by God. So in that sense, God, we're talking about God the Father. Jesus was begotten by God before all time began. Number five, Jesus was born on Christmas Day. Why? When was he born? Was Jesus never born? This, see, that's, that's a good question. This is a stretching. All right, well, let's look at six. Jesus existed from all eternity. True, because Jesus is God, right? But Jesus is a man as well, and he was born in his humanity on Christmas Day. So he both existed from all eternity and was born on Christmas. Both, right? That's the paradox. Jesus was part man and part God. False. False. Why is that false, sister? That's right. It wasn't like a cent- he wasn't a centaur, <laughs> half horse, half man. Right. This is kind of a hard one. Eight. When Jesus worked miracles, he was acting as God. When he suffered and died on the cross, he was acting as a man. If you mean exclusively false. Yeah, it's false because. <clears throat> no matter what he was doing, he was always both God and man. 
It wasn't like, oh, when he was dying, he was just a man, or when he was doing miracles, he was God. He was doing his, the miracles he did in his divinity. It was, he was able to do miracles because he was God, but Jesus, the man, was the one doing the miracles. And Jesus died in his humanity, but it was God who died in Jesus. And then the last three are true, right? God is Mary's son. God died on the cross. Mary held God in her arms. True, true, and true. Good. Yes? Um, so this is going back to your statement that, like, God is holding like, an acorn, and that's essentially our spiritual universe. Mm-hmm. Do you believe in, like, the multiverse of, like, multiple various universes that exist and, like, various versions of us? I don't know enough about theoretical physics to answer that, but I would say that if there were a multiverse, yeah. that God, it would still be finite next to God's infinite infinity. Yeah. And so whether there are multiverses, even, let's say, an infinite number of universes. I think even theoretically that doesn't make sense to me how a finite universe like ours could be copied infinitely. Somehow Thomas Aquinas would say you can't have an infinite regression and just say, like, oh, well, it's just infinite. Um, it's kind of a cop-out, I think. Yeah. So somehow the, the, the universe, whether it's one or multi, is finite and adds nothing to God's glory because God is infinite by nature. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, it does. I was just thinking, does that mean it's like holding like a bunch of acorns? Yeah, a bunch of acorns. But the acorns are kind of overlapping in multi-dimensions. <laughs> yeah. Good question. Wait, so are all the uh, Jesus saves like substitution commentary, are they all true at once? Yeah. So the church has never, um, the church has pronounced on theories of salvation, of how, of how Jesus saves us. Um, but as I showed it, like these scripture verses that kind of support like a solidarity understanding or a substitution understanding, divinization or Christus Victor, like it's all, it's like a tapestry. All of it makes up one whole full truth of understanding of how Jesus saves us. That doesn't mean that every understanding of Jesus' saving act is true. There are ones that have been condemned as not true. So for instance, Luther's understanding that we are justified by Jesus kind of forensically, meaning like you're not actually made just. It's just that God was mad about sin and as a just God had to punish someone. But instead of punishing you, he punished his own son and Jesus suffered the punishment for sin. So now if you believe in him, he's kind of your get out of jail free card. So you're on trial for murder and you got the death penalty, but Jesus just kind of slips into the seat and the judge is like, you, I I mean you and then you're like oh great I got out of jail as long as I trust him and, and throw my faith, faith in him then I get saved no because it doesn't that doesn't allow for your inner transformation you're becoming a saint the thing about being divinized and being saved is that it's not these aren't just a bunch of sinners up there like oh man we got into heaven you know what a coup de gras like we cheated the system because God's not only just but he's also merciful so he got us, he, he let us this like escape shaft. No, it's that we, he, God became one of us and entered our situation so we could enter his. And so we have to get in communion with Christ in order to be changed from the inside out so that you're ready for it. That's why there's purgatory. So Luther would say purgatory, that doesn't make any sense because it's not about your merit that gets you into heaven. It's just Jesus. That's it. He's covered you over with his justice and you're still rotten to the inside. You'll never really be a saint because you can do nothing good. You're, you're a sinner. 
but he says you're simul justus et percator. You're simultaneously just and a sinner because you're kind of Jesus, you're kind of you. And the two get kind of melded into one. But we believe in purgatory because you have to be fully a saint to get into heaven. There's no locks on the door in heaven because there's no thieves. So if your thing is thievery, like you got to get purged of that before you get into heaven so that it's really paradise, you know. Does that make sense? Matt? Yes, sir, we were, you were having a mention wherever Jesus is, also got in the, the Father and the Holy Spirit, and just kind of trying to think since like the persons are still distinct and just trying to think about how it, you know, actually understanding that, I mean, it, no, the Trinity isn't exactly something that's easy to understand, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, it's complicated. There's a parable of St. Augustine that he was uh, trying to contemplate the Trinity. And he sees this little kid uh, with a hole in the beach. He's like walking along the Mediterranean there. And there's a, uh, he's dug a hole, this little kid. And he's got a shell. And he's trying to take the water from the ocean and put it into the hole. And, the, and St. Augustine says, what are you doing? You'll never fit the whole ocean in that hole. And he says, and neither will you fit the Trinity in that little mind. <laughs> so it turns out it was an angel roasting him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So no, you can never, it's, we're used to a one-to-one relationship between person and nature. Like, I have one nature because I'm one person. I'm, I'm a human being. I'm not also a dog or a cat or a fish or a stone. I'm just a human. But Jesus is both the son of God and the son of man. So it's, it stretches our ability to understand, but it's true. It's not, it's not part, like, we can kind of, we can imagine a centaur, right? A half horse, half man, or a liger. That actually exists, I think, a tiger and a lion. But this fully man and fully God, that was the Council of Chalcedon in 451, said, you know, it's, he's fully man, fully God, without, distinct, without um, mixing or mingling or division. It's not like the, he's formed one like new thing, like a special God-man nature that's like a third nature. And it's not like he's both um, Jesus the man and the son of God as two persons like acting. No, they're both one and two at the same time, just like God is both one and three at the same time. So try to fit that in your mind, you're never going to do it. Mm-hmm.
natures in one holy person because hmm. you cannot conceive a human being only so only by your own mind as mm-hmm. kind of our current uh, culture tries to divide it you know mm-hmm. say that we're only like code like we're just a computer mm-hmm. uh, that I'm just my body or I'm just my soul like mm-hmm. they divide us to the hmm. it's kind of impossible because after the resurrection we do believe that we will be removed fully in the name of both God and of ourselves the closest way I guess we can understand history. I like that. It's good. Thank you, Alexis. All right, why don't we finish with a prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.